I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today, we're at the forefront of dry eye. Let's say that you have primarily a meibomian gland dysfunction, and you have excessive evaporative tear loss. And that changes the characteristics of the tear film, including the osmolarity of the tear film and the stability of the tear film. And that can result in damage to the ocular surface. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Lemp declares consulting fees from Alcon, Santan, Inspire, Novartis, Pfizer, and Almera, and equity ownership of Inspire and OcuSense. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Dry eye is perhaps the most frustrating problem we deal with. It is a diagnosis difficult to establish with certainty. Its symptoms are easily confused with ocular allergy and other ocular surface abnormalities. And therapeutic options, though multitudinous, are often unsatisfactory. And dry eye is, of course, one of the most common pathologies we encounter. What to do? What about a consultation with Michael Lemp? He's the editor-in-chief of the ocular surface and an undisputed expert in dry eye. I asked Dr. Lemp for a conventional definition of dry eye. Well, it relates back to the um, 1995 publication from the National Eye Institute Industry Workshop on Clinical Trials and Dry Eyes, which was uh, a series of meetings held over a two-year period in which 40 experts from around the world uh, were gathered together and spent a number of days in two different time periods and subcommittee uh, meetings in between to try to come to a consensus on what would be a definition of dry eye in addition to a classification system because there was no unity, no you know, uniformity of this uh, prior to this. And so a definition was formulated and published, which has been widely accepted throughout the world. And that definition is that it's the dry eye is a disorder of the tear film, either due to a tear deficiency or excessive tear evaporation, and this causes damage to the interpalpebral ocular surface and is associated with symptoms of ocular discomfort. So that's a global definition of the different things that cause a dry eye state, but it has sort of essential features with it that are, that are common to a dry eye regardless of what the primary initiating factor might be. Can a patient have altered tear function but normal tear production and still be classified as having dry eye? Yes. Let's say that you have, you have primarily a meibomian gland dysfunction, which is a type of uh, excessive tear evaporation, and yet your lacrimal glands seem to be functioning at a reasonably normal production level, and you have excessive evaporative tear loss from the meibomian gland dysfunction, and that changes the characteristics of the tear film, including the osmolarity of the tear film and the stability of the tear film, and that can result in damage to the ocular surface. Can you give me a more apt definition of dry eye than the traditional one than, than the one that, that, you, that you've given us? Let me just step back for a second and say uh, this is a process still in, in transition. 
uh, as a follow-up to the, those meetings, uh, another set of meetings had been set up called the Dry Eye Workshop, trying to come up with an updated definition. And the reason for an updated definition was really uh, because there have been a lot of developments in our understanding of the pathogenesis of dry eye over the last 10 years. And number two, there was a lack of uniformity throughout the world uh, in components of that definition. And by that, I'll give you an example. In Japan, for example, which is a very large part of, for example, for pharmaceutical companies, a, um, a market for dry eye products, uh, the Japanese doctors usually don't consider symptoms in terms of a definition of what they consider dry eye. They look only at objective findings, whereas symptoms assume a very large um, portion of the dry eye definition and recognition of patients in North America and in Europe. The idea was to try to get some consensus on getting a more uniform approach uh, to this because this would be important in terms of um, guiding pharmaceutical companies in the design of clinical trials and in designing clinical products that would be addressing symptoms too. So this, these are some of the background issues. Getting to what has happened over the last 10 years, some of the issues that are still being debated prior to a final resolution of what a new definition might be, would be to include uh, some aspects which were mentioned in the report 10 years ago but not included in the definition. And there are two of these in particular, one of which is inflammation and the other is an elevated osmolarity in the tear film. These were, 10 years ago when that was published, mentioned as global features of dry eye but not included in the definition. Over the last 10 years in particular, there have been a considerable number of studies which have documented the effects of uh, inflammation in dry eye as <clears throat> being a tissue destroyer in dry eye, particularly the uh, epithelial layers of the ocular surface, and also as a universal feature, osmolarity, an elevated salt concentration in the tear film, which essentially acts as a toxic environment for, tear, for the epithelium, and has a number of effects, including it's a rather potent stimulator of inflammation. Uh, as you bathe the ocular surface in a high salt concentration, you can liken it in a simple analogy to the kind of environment that exists, for example, in the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake where you have elevated salt concentrations. Things don't grow very well. Well, what we know in the ocular surface is that in, if you expose those epithelial surface cells to a hyperosmolar solution, they react by generating an inflammatory response. And so these are potent stimulators of inflammation on the surface, which ultimately leads to breakdown on the ocular surface. So the question arises, should you include those things, since they appear to be global features of dry eye, um, in a definition? And there's, right now, that is being debated, and evidence is being sifted through to see whether that would be a recommendation that would come out from this dry eye workshop group. While we're on the subject of the fact that the definition of dry eye varies by geographical region and, and the uh, fact that, um, that, the, that the Japanese definition does not take into account patient symptoms, to what extent do symptoms correlate with pathology? Well, I think the, to, to rephrase that a little bit, I think the question, to what extent do symptoms correlate with the clinical test that we have to objectively identify damage? Uh, because I think that's the real question, and the answer is they don't correlate terribly well. Uh, and that's been one of the really difficult issues that has to do with uh, development of clinical trials for developing new, new drugs in dry eye. 
because the traditional position of the American FDA has been that to demonstrate the efficacy of a therapeutic product for dry eye, you have to demonstrate a statistically significant improvement in both a sign and a symptom. And the fact is, they don't correlate very well. Now, the answer is, why do they not correlate very well? And there are a number of theories about this, but it appears that some of the reasons that they don't correlate well are probably the following. And that is, for mild to moderate dry eye, most of these patients don't demonstrate very much in the way of, for example, staining on the ocular surface, which is a manifestation, a clinically measurable manifestation of breakdown of the ocular surface, and one that physicians use to identify but what we now know is that staining occurs primarily in moderate to severe dry eye patients. There are some mild to moderate patients, moderate patients that will have a mild amount of staining, but in general, staining is limited to the more severe or advanced forms of dry eye. And so that means there's a lot of people in the mild or early category of dry eye, which constitutes the bulk of the people with symptoms, that you're not going to find some of those markers in, such as staining. If you look at another commonly used marker, such as the Schirmer test, that is only serially consistently low in moderate to severe disease, and it can be variable in patients with mild to moderate disease. So that's not a terribly good marker for it. So a lot of these people with symptoms are not going to show the traditional signs that we have associated with diagnosis, and that points up some of the deficiencies primarily in our diagnostic armamentarium uh, and we now know some of the pathogenetic processes that are going on. Now, one of the things that those of us who are involved in this field are looking at are newer markers for identifying these patients. And there's a series of them that have evidence has been presented in recent years that they may be good biomarkers for early or mild dry eye, which would be correlate better with the symptoms. But that has not really been extremely well documented, and we require more studies. But let me give you some examples of what they, they might be. Excuse me, before I do that, let me step back and go to one other aspect of your question about the correlation between symptoms and signs. And that has to do with the other end of the spectrum, and that's the more severe end of the spectrum. Those of us who've been dealing with these dry eye patients for many years have noted the um, seemingly paradoxical group of patients, a subset of patients who have more severe dry eye disease, who seem to have a paucity of symptoms, even though their eyes look terrible to us when we examine them with extensive staining, et cetera, and uh, very dry, dry, they don't seem to have severity as great as many patients who have almost no signs that we see. And recent evidence has shown that in the presence of inflammation, that there's a down-regulation of the sensory receptors on the ocular surface. So essentially, you have a, a type of a partial anesthetic ocular surface that can develop in the presence of inflammation. And that's another reason why at that end of the scale, there's not a good correlation between signs and symptoms. But getting back to, are there other biomarkers that um, could be used to identify these patients? And I can tell you the ones that are being investigated now and will be debated as the dry eye workshop series of meetings goes forward over the next year or two. One of the global features of dry eye is hyperosmolarity of the tear film, as I mentioned. There, at a, pres a presentation at one of the most recent dues meetings, one of the members, Dr. Alan Tomlinson, who is an OD PhD uh, from Glasgow, and uh, has a facility there that does a lot of testing on dry eye patients for the various hospitals in the Glasgow area, 
has a lot of experience over the last 10 years measuring tear film osmolarity with a variety of instruments that have been available. And these are primarily uh, research instruments because they're difficult to do the test, they're difficult to maintain the instrumentation, and you need someone with a high level of skill to be able to do this. Nonetheless, his group has done it. He analyzed all the literature over the last 40 years, and he compared the studies that have looked at osmolarity as a marker for dry eye compared to other tests, other clinical tests that, are, uh, that are, have been available over the years. And he found this the single best predictor for identifying dry eye, and it was statistically significantly different. And even, status, even if you compared it to several other tests being put together, this looked like the best predictor for identifying dry eye people, and it was a huge amount of data that he went through uh, to support this. So there's a lot of evidence that osmolarity is a very good marker for dry eye because you get an increased salt concentration either from increased evaporative tear loss where you're losing water and concentrating the salts or changes in the production of tears in the lacrimal glands and or changes that occur uh, as a consequence of breakdown on the ocular surface causes an unstable tear film, encourages more evaporative tear loss, and there's a vicious cycle that's, that's established. The problem with it as a practical test has been that the instrumentation has not been suitable for a clinical setting because it's simply, number one, too expensive, number two, very difficult to do. You need highly trained technicians, and it takes a lot of time, which is, and if you're not in a research setting, is unlikely to receive wide adoption clinically. New methods are being developed to develop a much simpler test for this, for, uh, suitable for clinical use. It's been reported at some of the national, uh, some of the international meetings, and I do have to give you a disclaimer. I'm involved in that effort, so I have a conflict of interest in, in saying too much about it because I'm not trying to promote it. But it's in development, and if that comes to a realization, then that could be a potential, uh, really a simple way of identifying dry eye, and that would be suitable for a clinical setting and may change the way that most of us diagnose dry eye. Alternative things that are being looked at, are there are a number of initiatives coming from Japanese investigators here. It's a very interesting um, aspect of dry eye. And this has to do with the fact that clinicians have noted for a long time that many dry eye patients coming in have rather vague complaints about their vision. They can't articulate them very well, and if most of them, if you test on a standard Snellen visual acuity chart, they will read pretty well, and that they'll read the 2020 line. But what we now know is happening, and we now have ways to measure this, is in between blinks, their tear film is breaking down breakup of the tear film, rapid breakup of the tear film, which we know has gone along with dry eye for many years, um, is happening, and that image is degrading in between blinks. Now, they can blink and momentarily get a clear image and read the chart for us, but it breaks down, and we know for many dry eye patients in between blinks that 30 40% of the time their image is degraded, and that's the period of time they're walking around with a compromised vision. But they didn't come in. They don't come in usually complaining of that. They'll complain more of... I don't like to read as much anymore. My eyes feel tired. And vague, asthenopic complaints. But what they're really complaining about is a, is a diminution in their vision. And what the Japanese have looked at is two things. It's a spinoff of, of breakup time, but they have developed a, a spinoff of the, the technology that we use with refractive surgery to, to measure corneal shape. And so if you can take any of those machines that were using reflective light and bouncing off the surface to study the curvature of the cornea, you can use that to study 
uh, the breakup of the tear film. And they have a way to do this now over, say, a 10-second period. We can put a very small amount, a very dilute type of anesthetic to enable someone to keep their eyes open for that long. And they can study these patterns of breakup in between blinks, and they can measure this. And it's much, much faster in dry eyes than it is in normals. And as a further development of this, they have developed an, another test called a, f a functional visual acuity test. And this is a, a, a test in which, once again, with a small amount of uh, very dilute anesthetic, you ask a patient to stare ahead, and you present a series of optotypes to them. And you present it in various uh, sequences and whatnot. So uh, there are no clues with the formation of letters and things like that. But you can then measure the degradation of vision and how it happens over a period of time in between blinking in dry eye patients versus normals, and it's much, much more rapid in uh, dry eye patients than normals. Now, these represent exciting things for those of us who deal with clinical trials because we think that this offers the potential for new endpoints for measuring the effectiveness of various therapeutic agents that are uh, being developed. We hope that we'll have better ways in the not-too-distant future to design clinical trials and uh, that will enable us to bring out differences in different treatment methods. Now, the caveat of all this is that you need regulatory agency buy-in. They have to decide that these new endpoints are valid endpoints. And basically, there needs to be more peer-reviewed published reports in the literature to support this before the regulatory agencies will adopt this as new endpoints. But I think it's very promising. There's a lot going on in this field, and this is one of the reasons why uh, an organized effort like the one that was referred to in this editorial, the Dry Eye Workshop, we think is important to try to get some uniformity uh, throughout the world uh, because if you're going to get new products developed, uh, the enormous expense that pharmaceutical companies go to, to to get these things approved, they really want a worldwide market. And when the world is divided up with different criteria in different parts of the world, it makes it much more difficult for them to justify spending the money to go through all these regulatory studies uh, in order to get approval. There was just an article recent in the Ocular Surface, the journal that I edit, by uh, uh, Gary Novak, who writes a column called Pipeline for us, and in a takeoff on Thomas Friedman's best-selling book, uh, The World is Flat, he asked the question, is the pharmaceutical uh, industry, the world of pharmaceutical industry, flat? And his answer was, it is not. That the regulatory agencies, for example, between the U.S., Europe, and Japan have very different criteria for getting drugs approved. And there's not uniformity in this. And it's hoped that by uh, efforts such as the Dry Eye Workshop with experts from around the world, that this will provide information for all the regulatory agencies to get a more uniform approach to these things, and it will be to everybody's benefit. Given the paucity of symptoms in patients with mild dry, dry eye, do you manage these patients mostly based on their, on their symptoms rather than on clinical findings? Well, I think the, that's a very, it's a very interesting point. In other words, what's the current in terms of management? And there, there are a couple of interesting things that are emerging I'd like to um, uh, mention. And one of which is the diagnosis of dry eye. Most clinicians, and we know this from surveys that we've taken, are not using a lot of the traditional tests. And it comes from various reasons. Number one, economic conditions are, promote, are pushing them not to spend a lot of chair time on diagnosis. And so what they're doing is what they call in some, some of the new books now, thin slicing, taking little bits of information and making educated guesses on the basis of that. And they are depending on patient symptoms. 
And although we have classification systems that differentiate, for example, between evaporative dry eye and aqueous deficient dry eye, most clinicians are not using those very much. And there's some validity for that because there's a two-thirds overlap between those two. So most patients have some degree of both of those kinds of uh, dry eye. And so they're depending more on degrees of severity to differentiate between the treatment of patients. And for example, you know, we have only one therapeutic drug approved in the United States, and that's Restasis. And a number of clinicians are who reserve Restasis for moderate to severe disease are judging their patients on the basis of, does this patient have what I consider mild disease, moderate disease, or severe disease? And they're a candidate, therefore, for different treatments with different costs associated with them based on those kinds of differentiations. The problem with relying on symptoms alone is that there's an overlap between symptoms of dry eye and other conditions such as allergy. And since allergy is such a prevalent condition, affecting between 10 and 20% of the population, at least in some times of the year, you can make a mistake uh, by that without having any objective criteria to go along with it. So the best thing probably is a mixture of objective criteria and symptoms. But symptoms do assume an important role, and there have been a lot of papers that have been published in the past few years about various surveys that you can give to patients, assessing the relative value of those surveys, and coming up with a reasonable uh, likelihood of coming to a correct diagnosis. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second here. Given the fact that the modalities for therapy for dry eye are relatively limited, what impact do the new diagnostic techniques and indeed a new definition of dry eye have on, have on therapy? For example, how do we treat someone who has an inappropriate uh, salt concentration to the, to the tear layer or, or even early tear film breakup time uh, that is different from the way that we manage someone with a dry eye or with meibomian gland dysfunction currently? Well, I think that we are beginning to get better products on the market, and that, that includes not only what we would uh, traditionally call therapeutics, and we, you know, we only have one, quote, therapeutic in this country, Restasis, but the so-called palliative treatments are getting interesting components to them so that the, the differentiation between those two categories is beginning, at least in my mind, to blur. And what you're finding are some studies. Now, admittedly, some of them are of small numbers of patients. They don't have very large numbers in the studies. But they're answer, asking some interesting questions. And some of the newer formulations have shown that, number one, they can retard evaporative tear loss uh, because they have a lipid component uh, to them, and that's a good thing. Others have shown that they can uh, do a number of things, such as stabilize the tear film. And th those effects can be measured at... 30 minutes to 40 minutes after installation of a drop. And it, it is probable that that effect lasts significantly longer than that. Other studies are being done that are now beginning to be reported at meetings. If you use an artificial tear preparation that has some of these properties, what effect do you have after you stop it if you've used it for three or four weeks? In other words, do you have any prolonged effect on the, the surface of the eye by putting it and surrounding it by a better environment in terms of tonicity uh, and stability. And one study, which has not yet been published but has been reported at meetings, has showed that if you 
stop one of these agents, uh, that you can find improvement in the state of the ocular surface health up to several weeks afterwards. So it isn't just a question of putting it in and you get effect for a couple of hours. So if these studies hold up, and I must say they are still small numbers of studies and need to be confirmed, but they're very promising. But the real payoff for all of this is in the drugs that are in development. And we have, nobody knows except the FDA in this country, exactly how many drugs are in various states of development because it's proprietary information. But based on what's in the public domain, there are at least... 13 to 16 drugs in various stages of development for potential therapeutic use in this country. There's a lot of interest in this. The big problem is that the design of the clinical trials makes it extremely difficult with the current rules that are in place to demonstrate efficacy, even in drugs that you have a lot of information from clinical trials that would suggest that they are indeed quite efficacious. And I think that that scene is changing and new, more novel, and interesting ways to demonstrate efficacy are beginning to emerge. Uh, and with the FDA beginning to hear all this material presented at meetings and more papers coming out, it is the hope of almost everyone that we'll have more rational ways to uh, identify endpoints. And that will result in probably, and while it's difficult and, uh, to predict the future, a lot of us who deal in this area think that in the U.S. within about three years, the clinician is probably going to be faced with three or four different therapeutic drugs to use. And the clinician is now going to have to make a choice of how do I manage this patient. It isn't like I don't have very much to do for him, so what difference does it make whether I diagnose it very much or whether I'm very precise in this because there's not a lot to do with it. That, that situation is going to change. And it's even changing right now. If you talk to more experienced practitioners in this area across the country, they're doing something now that was never done a few years ago. For example, they're using topical steroids in the management of these patients, and particularly with the so-called soft steroids and using them in pulsed treatment, using them as a run-in while they're waiting for the effects of restasis to kick in. I mean, the whole treatment paradigm is beginning to shift, and you always see that first in the early adopters, the innovators and early adopters, but then it gets to the great majority in the middle and, and migrates on to other people in practice. So things are in, in a state of flux right now. Can I have you tell us about the survey of cornea and of, and of dry eye specialists uh, taken from the, from the ARVO membership? Well, this was, uh, this was actually the, the, from the, from the run-up to the dues meeting. And this was basically a snapshot in time, and it says, how do you treat things now? How do you rank the importance of things they are now? This was not a look at the future. This was a snapshot in time as how, how do things go right now? And so basically uh, they were simply looking at uh, asking some interesting questions and getting uh, feedback on how, what people thought were important in terms of how important are symptoms as opposed to objective signs. How do you go about answering questions about what's important in diagnosis and how do you make treatment decisions and this type of thing. And the real purpose of this was to see where we are right at, at the moment here now before so we can go forward understanding how what uh, doctors are thinking and informed opinions from opinion leaders uh, around the world. And that's what this survey really was. It's really simply a starting point. What are your recommendations for clinicians right now? Well, in terms of uh, recognizing dry eye, I mean, symptoms are important. And since you don't have a lot of really terribly accurate tools to, to finally diagnose the, the condition, I think that you have to pay attention to people's symptoms because if they got symptoms, there's 
there's a problem there. Tear film instability is, is a global feature of this. And so looking at a tear film breakup as a global test, I think, is a very important test to do. And it's, it doesn't take that long to do, and it's fairly simple. The other thing that is that in many uh, series that have come out, meibomian gland dysfunction is an extremely common problem, and you need to look for that because that's going to give you a big clue. And by looking at the state of the lid margins, by looking at the expression of the secretion of meibomian glands, in normals it should be a clear material that you're able to express. If that material is turbid, cloudy, or in more extreme cases, becomes coagulated like toothpaste, you've got a significant meibomian gland dysfunction problem. Those lipids are not retarding evaporative tear loss, and you have extreme loss of tears to evaporation, and that has to be addressed. So those are some of the kind of the overview things in recognizing dry eye that you're looking at now. And Shermer tests, I think, are important only because when they are serially consistent, they really tell you important information about the actual state of lacrimal gland tear production. Beyond that, in terms of management, I think that the trend towards looking towards severity of the disease in terms of making management decisions uh, is a, a valid one and that clinicians have, have dealt with. So I think you have to make a, an assessment of how severe the problem is and what's the appropriate treatment. We have a lot of new artificial tears now. Not one artificial tear is going to be the best tear for everybody, but some of them clearly have some advantages over others from demonstrated from studies that have been done and from clinical experience. And some of the newer ones that have lipid components in it to retard evaporative tear loss are probably reasonable choices. And those that, that have a tear stabilizing effect will also lessen evaporative tear loss. And so I think that those things are serious considerations. Uh, that you need to use. And, of course, the things that we all know now are we should, in any of these people, avoid uh, toxic preservatives to the extent possible because that uh, really is a backward step in terms of the ocular surface. So those are sort of guidelines for using it. In terms of what is the place of the one therapeutic agent, uh, that remains somewhat controversial. Increased experience with restasis, however, by practitioners is generally met with the more that they use it, the, the more pleased they are with it over a period of time. But it certainly takes time to kick in, and it is expensive. And as I mentioned earlier, a number of the more cutting-edge, uh, innovative practitioners are using steroids in a short term to reduce symptomatology and reduce inflammation on the ocular surface for the moderate to severe patients while they're waiting for a therapeutic agent like Restasis to kick in. But this is going to change as we get new drugs that have different mechanisms of action. And the mix of these things is really going to be determined by the marketplace after you get out there and what clinicians' experience is. But it's likely, if I had to look into the future, I would say that in a few years from now that we'll probably be using two or three different agents at different time periods, different dosaging over a course of time in terms of managing these patients uh, successfully. Thank you very much, Michael. You're quite welcome. Bye-bye. Michael Lemp is professor of ophthalmology at Georgetown University and George Washington University and editor-in-chief of the Ocular Surface. He's also chief medical officer of OcuSense. His editorial, Changing Trends in the Definition and Diagnosis of Dry Eyes, appears in the September 2005 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology.
I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will, of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Lemp or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.